From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 106 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl, and I'm joined, as always, by Dave and Ryan. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Very well, thank you. Plug it away. It's been, been, been uh, the weather's turning. I'm enjoying being outside more often. It's gone pretty well. See, Dave has Dave has that sound of springtime in his voice. He's uh, he's enjoying the fact that there are blossoms on trees and people in the outside. That's well, plus uh, it's cherry it's cherry blossoms are about to hit. Uh, there you go. Baseball season's starting. It's all my favorite things for the spring. See, is, Dave, uh, oh, sorry, Dave so is, is your Dave's team got actually have a a deal for your championship from like two years ago? So they have not, they, the, the fans keep talking about how we want to do something, but we want to all be back in the stadium. There's literally discussion that we might do something in 2022 to celebrate. <laughs> Remember that game we won? <laughs> Remember that championship we won? Like, like, it, like there is actual discussion that that is what the fan base wants. Is, that the is there any discussion that you will actually win the World Series again? Or is that off the table? It isn't. We're in the. We're theoretically in the running. We're the. We're in the toughest division. NL East is going to be the toughest division in baseball. Uh, but the team is built for. It is built to try again, not to rebuild and start over. So, right. well, as as a Gonzaga graduate, I can tell you, uh, our team is doing well. This is being recorded before Easter. It will be aired after Easter. So we shall see. Yes. Well, I, as I as I always just observe on this is. The, Gone are the days where people could be dismissive of Washington teams. We have real teams competing, particularly in both hockey and in baseball. We are forces to be reckoned with. <laughs> and so I do not take take lightly with people who mock DC teams. We are a real force these days. <laughs> take me seriously, damn it. <laughs> people in the serious industries in this world are uh, are quick to say it's just sports that's not important I, I will disagree with that after a year and more inside of this pandemic world i do believe that humans need things beyond the grind of their everyday to root for and and that is not just live sports there are many things obviously that people are interested in but you sure the difference right I, I think right now there is a genuine buzz in the fact that there are sports going on and people are actually cheering for it. And to your point, Carl, uh, the, uh, the, the ongoing basketball tournament that, uh, that, that's having uh, such a big sports impact, uh, I think that they're starting to feel the pain of as soon as everybody in the whole wide world is paying attention to you, you got to be careful about what they're actually going to learn about you. And they are having some public relations challenges as a result of they're the only game in town right now. But but it, it, the, it's spring has become buzzy. So I think it's it's an exciting time as we all sort of consider how this this may start getting a whole lot better. Well, I think summer's always a little slower. So when the summer is gone and things begin to speed up in late August and early September, I think we'll be pretty close to back to normal, at least inside the U.S. Or whatever the next thing is. I think that's the best way of yeah. looking at it. Whatever the next thing is, we'll be humming along. The next normal. Yeah, we, uh, in fact, I had a conversation with a client based in the U.K. this week whose comment was, 
even we in the UK are about to come back out of lockdown, he said, so something significantly good must be going on. And we had a conversation about vaccines and about rollouts and about uh, whether or not people are complying with all of the behavioral things. And he, he, for the first time in over a year, there were optimistic things to say about that trajectory. Now, of course, we looked right across the, uh, the ocean over there on the other side, and some folks are going back into lockdown. So everybody wear your freaking mask. Exactly. Wear your mask. Get your vaccine, wear your mask. Hang in there. We're going to cross the finish line strong. Well, let me let me do. We're gonna this week. We're brought to you by ourselves. In fact, we want to take a moment Yay. to tell you about our other properties. If you, thank you for listening to Killing It. If you are not aware, I do a daily podcast called The Business of Tech. It's five minutes every day just to give you the news and why you care about each of those stories. Available every single day on uh, Workday on a Podcatcher. And now, if you'd like to watch me on video, available on Fridays as a roll-up weekly video. And Carl, tell them a little bit about your podcast. So I do a podcast uh, co-sponsored or, or co-hosted with James Kernan and Amy Babinchek called the SMB Community Podcast. And we've been, I don't know, going for like eight years now. And that's over at smbcommunitypodcast.com. It uh, drops on Thursdays. So check it out and give us your feedback. All of us, all you know, Dave and Amy and uh, James and I, we want your feedback. If you like it, hate it, whatever, Please let us know. Oh, even, and the, it too. even the bad comments. I love. I want to hear people's thoughts. I don't mind it. Well, let's dive in, gents, because this first one just made me so smile. Because it's almost the premise of the podcast. A little bit was to break down the way we talk about things. The headline: Stop talking about multi-cloud and hybrid cloud, and start talking about integration. Now, it's an enterprise-focused article um, in terms of the way they walk it through. So they talk about the, the various kinds of clouds and what multi-cloud is and hybrid cloud. But for me, the big takeaway was this idea of uh, it's, it's a little bit irrelevant, all of those definitions, because really the value is in making those systems work by bringing them together. That it doesn't matter if you're hybrid cloud or multi-cloud or all of those piece, pieces, if you focus on the integrations and to bring them together in a coherent, valuable system, that's the true value. And I, my immediate response that I wanted to throw out for discussion is that the, well, duh, that's what happens when you decomplicate things and you really just talk about making it work. Uh, it, what, what was your take on this one? Are we getting in our own way too much with the way we talk about these solutions? Well, you know, our industry loves the jargon of the week. And there's no better example of that than the cloud. Like, I, you know, I've been teaching about the cloud for 13 years now. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point it does become old news, but a lot of people can literally say, look, you know, the way that you're describing this in terms of multi-cloud, we did that since day one, because it's only the, it's the safest way to go. On the other hand, there are people who are not only single cloud, but they don't even know that they should be backing up, up because, oh, Google will take care of that. Microsoft will take care of that. Amazon will take care of that. Like, or not, right? <laughs> or not. See, and I will say from the dawn of the technology industry, our single biggest enemy has been intentional proprietary isolation. 
of systems and data that are necessary for running a business, right? Now, if the point and purpose of the technology that you are deploying is to deploy a really cool technology system, then a walled garden with proprietary uh, formats and functions with utter consistency inside of that community, that's going to be more stable, more reliable, more uh, more of a performance asset. I, I get that from a technology point of view. Integration leads to inconsistency and integration leads to, uh, well, maybe you didn't do the, in the integration correctly and therefore what were two isolated, perfectly fine systems now are one integrated, perfectly not fine system because there was user error in between those two things. But isolation has been the enemy of technology value from the dawn of our industry. As soon as we figured out how to take this proprietary operating system and allow it to share data and talk back and forth to another proprietary system, every single customer in that ecosystem benefited from that. As soon as we took the walls out of client server, we put things into the cloud. It is remarkable to me, Carl, that we had to relearn that lesson again in the cloud, right? Like, I mean, I swear, the very first thing a smart technical person ever taught me in this industry when I was a kid was no single point of failure. Like you right. should probably have a backup of your data so that in case the first one gets hosed, you can have something to go to. I learned that forever ago. And then all of this advancement, all of this rocket science into the multi-cloud. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We have to learn this again. No <laughs> single point of failure. It's totally true. And, and but you know, the, the, the article is a good read, particularly if you are doing any kind of, of uh, web dev or big infrastructure management in multi-cloud and that kind of stuff. But the uh, for me, even if you're a small business person, I would sort of encourage you to take a look at this, to think through some of the way that they're talking about the value add. I, I'm all, this is my thing. I'm constantly wanting to talk about the way that you can deliver business value. This was a pretty great way of redefining where the value is because they talk about data flows and they're talking about event streams and the, those kinds of pieces way more than which cloud it is and all of the basics of management. It's much more about the, the way the data flows, the way it's leveraged by the various business units. That's the stuff where the value is. And so, you know, Go, if you're not an enterprise person, I would say still read this one because you want to go reach outside your comfort zone to learn for there. Well, the other thing is that even if you're not enterprise, I can tell you none of this is particularly genius level stuff, right? <laughs> no. I mean, uh, like there's, you know, cloud meshes and multi-point and this and that, but there's also all of this can be done with scripting, right? My core data is at one brand name cloud provider, and every single night I run a script to copy it over, copy all, all change data over to another brand name cloud service provider. And I don't use a BDR for that. I don't even use, you know, I have a NAS. My NAS is only a local backup of what's already on two different clouds. All of that is done with scripting. So I didn't buy a package and install it, and I'm certainly not a genius, uh, but you know, you should be figuring out how you can provide 
multi-cloud options. And if you need to put that, you know, on a T-shirt or something, go right ahead. But yeah. it really is just the way to do business. Yeah, I've got a shop. We could put it on. We could put anything on a T-shirt. Put it on a T-shirt and 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 sell it to the masses. See, but where, right where you're going, Carl, the way we describe this makes it seem harder than it actually is. As an industry, we love to overcomplicate the description so that people go, "Ooh." You sound really smart. You understand complicated things where under the surface, it's like, well, so what you're doing is you're copying your data from point A to point B and you've got more than one version. Therefore, you're half as likely to lose that stuff. I believe service providers in the SMB have a tremendous opportunity to sell these kinds of services by eliminating the complex description, right? I think the most important thing we can do is to make the hard parts transparent, right? Like how does all of that complicated data protection and cyber asset value protection happen? Don't worry about that. That's why you pay us to provide this service. Right. All you we need push to a button, is, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, you sign up, we make it happen and you have an SLA to give you the warm fuzzies. So don't worry about how the hard stuff happens. We'll do it. All right. Excellent. All right, guys, let's jump into a second topic here, uh, a, a theme that we have addressed in the past where we talked about the emergence and the danger of deep fakes as a technology, whether in photographs or in video or even in audio applications. There are technologies now that can, using artificial intelligence, ape the target of, uh, of a video segment, for example, and you can make them say whatever it is you want them to say. Look, I saw the video evidence. Of course you said that. Recently, you guys may have seen the video going around the wide world of Tom Cruise, where a guy went out, if you've not seen this, a guy went out and made several videos of himself and then deep faked it so that it appeared to be Tom Cruise. And he was saying things, of course, that Mr. Cruise would never, ever say. And, and he did it for the purpose of illustrating that this stuff is out there. Now, what's fascinating in the article that we're linking to here, and I wanna know if you guys think this is going to be enough of a defense, using artificial intelligence, we can now find a way to detect what is real and what is deep fake based on the light reflection patterns inside the pupils of the subjects in the video image. Now. That sounds like rocket science to me, but once you read the article, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. What do you guys think about this as a defense against the deep fakes? Well, it's important to note that, that the methodology is good for the more crude ones. Like the more sophisticated the deep fake gets, the less this methodology works. Um, I look, I want to see investment in figuring out ways to authenticate this kind of video, be it AI to look for deep fakes or the, some of the technology method, methods that they've used to validate that it was untampered coming out of the device. For example, there are some methodologies in to, to stamp that blockchain might apply, but there's other ways to, to standardize and show that, you know, to show it on unaltered video. And I'm so thinking about this because I have real concerns on kind of the legal framework of what happens if video and audio cannot be trusted in the framework of under a court of law or to, 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 that we're using now to try and prove guilt and innocence. There's just such implications 
even at, at that extreme, all the way down to just misinterpreting data, that we've got to be investing in some kind of solution to figure this out in order to know what what is real and what is not. Well, I would point to the fact that I've always uh, I always look at technology from a very uh, optimistic point of view, and to me, the good news is that AI and technology are going to help us actually uh, make some headway here. You know, it's not all bad news like, oh my gosh, they can fake absolutely anything. You know, it's always going to be spy versus spy, but at some point, uh, I think the good guys are at least going to hold their own, <laughs> even if they don't necessarily pull out ahead. The other thing I would, I would mention is, if you haven't read the book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, once people see an image, especially if it supports their already solidly held belief system, then that is what they're going to see and that's what they're going to believe and that's what's going to last with them, even if later they rationally get an explanation that says that wasn't real. So, you know, the, the bad guys still have an upper hand in that regard. So this is where this is where I want to push a little bit because because Carl, I mean, I I have been I'm naturally an optimistic kind of guy. I've always been I've sp spent so much of my career being an optimist around technology, and what I've discovered for myself when I think about this is that I have a blind spot for the downsides of the technologies as we get. I get very excited about where they're going. And I think like many technologists, I immediately only think of the good things and I forget the bad things. And I talk a lot about now, the, I call it my black mirror test, right? The, the There's that crazy show on Netflix and the BBC that where it's all about the just slightly dystopian future. And what they do is they take some piece of technology and they just think of some of the ways that it could be used in some really twisted and weird ways. And oftentimes I, f I keep thinking of the well you know if if i had been more taking the moment to be not only optimistic but then apply this test and go what would the writers of that show do to mess with this technology that if we could build in earlier into the way that it could be managed that we would be able to get ahead yeah. of this more and so I don't want to discourage people from being optimistic, but I want to apply this filter of like, remember the writer's room of the Black, uh, Black Mirror, because those guys are going to come up with some really crazy well, stuff. I would just say that th what, what you've just described is the history of technology, right? I mean, in oh, yeah. the early days of the internet, I could type in a code and find out every file on your computer, every user on your computer, every port on your computer. And it was just all open because why would anybody abuse this system that we've all contributed to. Well, step forward one day and <laughs> there's some evil people in the world. And so, you know, most of this technology, even today, most of the problems we have with open uh, cameras and everything else that we've covered in this show, it, it's all because we built technology based on the positive and we didn't think about how somebody would abuse it. Well, and, and I do think that, you know, again, we are we are natural true believers in emerging technology. We believe that technology can in fact make the world a better place. That's why we do this for a living, but it's it's healthy to remember. You know, I, I do believe that the use cases I have seen for deep fake on the positive side have tilted me a little bit in the last 12 months, more to the optimistic and less cynical. 
a year ago, I was very, very cynical. And all I could think of was, oh, God, there went fake courtroom evidence and we're never going to be able to trust our eyes again. Now I am seeing things, whether in the medical field, in the training field, in the uh, in the, the proof of concept or field demonstration applications. I have seen many things that make me think deepfake is very cool up to end, including your face on that AR, the augmented reality model in a retail shopping environment. I saw that application, I was like, dang, that's a cool way to do remote selling using an advanced technology. But, I, I, and because I'm not the one who's doing this, I am deeply hoping that there are responsible grown-ups paying attention to the negative side, because you're exactly right, Carl. There will never be a technology, no matter how, what it is or what it was intended for, there will never be a technology that cannot be used for evil if you are not wise about it. And deep fakes have already been used for evil in several Star Wars movies, really <laughs> irresponsibly bringing back characters in ways they shouldn't have been brought back. Maybe advancements in deep fake will at least make that may not be the most evil that's been done. <laughs> that's pretty evil. Let's go on. That's pretty evil. <laughs> if you die in real life, you should stop making movies. If you come back creepy looking in a, in a movie after you're dead, that's really bad. <laughs> All righty then. Enough of that. Well, so in a somewhat related topic, so. Uh, the, the next up is open artificial intelligence that doesn't require massive computing power. So, um, so this is one of these things we've actually been kind of working towards for a while. You know, some of the, the um, larger vendors have made available AI technology, TensorFlow and so forth. And now we're getting to the point where it's open source enough that uh, there's an open AI standard emerging. and you know, if you have, if you, if you're smart enough to have an idea that you can think of where you would use AI, this might be an opportunity for you to actually help move things forward. I will say that the biggest takeaway from me in this whole topic is kind of the democratization of technology. We always worry about the technology gap and how that can only grow bigger and bigger and bigger. But this is something where if you have access to this at your library, and you don't have to own any computer, let alone a supercomputer, I think that's a, a huge step in the right direction. Ooh, you so said it the way, though, that I, because it's, you're right about the access, right? But how many people don't have, you don't even have basic access. And I, well, and most I, of the third world. Right. Or, well, or, or a good chunk of the first world. Like well, <laughs> the middle of the United States. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I, I try on the business of tech, I, I track all the time the broadband divide and the number of uh, Americans that do not have access to broadband. I mean, as we're recording, uh, the president is talking about investments in broadband infrastructure as part of an infrastructure rollout. So, look, I'm super excited and, and I, I, lo I lo like what's happening with the democratization of technology. I like technologies like this becoming more available. I do worry about the divide because sometimes we make assumptions as technologists about the about the you know what we've already done. I, I, the, well, we've solved the connectivity problem. 
well, have we? <laughs> like, like, and so there, there needs to be these kind of two concurrent paths where we're like pushing the far edge, but we're also making sure that the gap between the, the cutting edge and the baseline doesn't get further and further. Yeah, see, you're right, because the I, I have thought this through carefully, and the one reason that I have, over the past three or four years, the one reason I have not been as excited about the emergence of AI as some people in the marketplace have been, is that I always thought of it in two parts. A, that's cool. B, if you've got unlimited funds for supercomputing resources and capabilities. In other words, that the software can do this stuff, that you can you can educate an artificial intelligence, you can make it capable of performing discretionary tasks, that you can make this stuff work. There's a there's a sci-fi geek in me that goes, ooh, that's really, really cool. And then there's a realistic side that says, but I'm never gonna be able to do that, nor anybody I know, because we don't have a spare gajillion dollars for all of that massive supercompute architecture. Now, believe me, when, when manufacturers come out with new supercomputer uh, product offerings, I was in a room maybe two and a half years ago, one of one of the branded mainstream server manufacturers came out and talked about their next new thing. It wasn't for mass release. It was just a product for demonstrating just how cool they are and how advanced <laughs> their technology can be. And I remember sitting in that room and thinking, damn, 25 years into my career in this industry, I can still get chills when somebody shows me, wow, that's impressive advanced technology. And then the guy sitting next to me did a little quick calculation on his phone. And he was like, yeah, by the way, this is based on the component costs that we're talking about to make that system run. He's like, here's what the street price would be of this thing. And the use case was super cool. In, in trivial applications, because they haven't done anything rocket science with it yet. It got everybody all Twitter-pated, and then, oh, by the way, one rack mount unit of this thing, basically a cabinet, right, and there, there were a certain number of devices in it, was $11 million. And I, that's one rack for $11 million. When you can get a, an account at your school, and you can mm -hmm. access a system, and it costs you nothing, then the fact that it cost, you know, some manufacturer a gazillion dollars is kind of irrelevant. No, see, and that's know? the thing, right? This article that, that you've surfaced here, that's what changes my mind. That's what makes me go, wait a second. You, me, every regular person who just happens to have nothing more than a really interesting idea can now use distributed computing to produce very advanced outputs using AI without having to have that $11 million. Now, don't get me wrong. I would love to sell somebody one of those $11 million cabinets. Right. That's awesome. I think that's the coolest thing in the world, but it's not real. It's not realistic. This finally makes AI accessible to the market. You use the magic world, Carl. The, the word is we democratized a radically advanced technology, and that happened, what? 50 years faster than any other technology in our industry has ever become available to the masses. That's kind of cool. The speed is certainly very cool. And, and the, you know, and, and my other big thinking on a lot of this stuff is, is we generally assume a lot of the technology is a lot harder than it used to be. 
Um, I was doing, I was just literally just talking to a, uh, expert in fintech and was talking about literally just the like, oh, well, we'll just spin it all up. We'll just write a bunch of, you know, <laughs> we'll spin up a system. We'll do it in AWS. We'll build it all out. We'll be investing in something new. And it's like, yeah, that way of thinking, that's a speed to market bit, you know, and, and I compare that statement to a vendor that I was talking with recently. It was like, oh, well, you know, we're totally working on our roadmap. It's like the next 24 months. And I'm like, <laughs> well, 24 months, like, like, you know, seriously, a couple of couple of people could go spin something up in AWS and, and be coding, you know, right away. And, and there's this, this, you know, this disconnect sometimes in terms of the speed of what's possible now versus the way we've been doing it that that, you know, I mean, again, things move slower than we always think they do, but they also can move a lot faster than we think they can. Well, and, you know, we're all fans of uh, Daniel Burris, right? Things are moving slower than we want them to. And at the same time, the new technology from for five years from now has already been invented, right? right. So yeah. it's just a matter of like looking at it and saying, I've got an application that brings that into uh, a realm that people can understand it and get some value out of it. Yeah. I think the best part about this is that many of these companies, Google and Amazon and Microsoft and so forth, have got structures where, hey, you want to play with blockchain? Go sign up for the blockchain toolkit. You, you want to play with AI? Sign up for the AI toolkit. And, you know, they're just putting it out there to see what kind of cool, fun things people can come up with. And it's usually going to be, you know, young people, some 14-year-old is going to, you know, change the world with artificial intelligence because now there's an open AI. See, and, and I also I, forward really bad ideas. You, yes, exactly. <laughs> very, very immature. Go to your room. Stop doing that. Um, see, I believe as a person who has at one point in his career very poorly provisioned a server instance because they, they thought you're the sales guy selling this stuff. You better know what you're talking about. So I had to sit in a lab for a week and learn how to do these things. The fact that we use that terminology, Dave, of just spin it up. It'll be there tomorrow. No big deal understanding all of the mechanical things that used to be required to accomplish the terminology or the outcome of spinning up a server and the fact that you can literally do that in a minute now that has completely altered the the conversation and and i do believe that some technology big thinkers years ago made the point that we were going to move out of the infrastructure and into the software and through to the ideas. And that's where I think we're starting to get with this. It's not, don't worry about the plumbing, just worry about what you're going to use it for. All righty. Very good. Well, sadly, we are out of time, but we will be back next week and we're plugging along through the 100s. So we're almost at 200 episodes. We've just got a little bit more. This is <laughs> this has been episode 106 of the Killing It, Killing it podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.